Lord, we are so grateful for this time at Focus Together. Thank you for uh, the, the blessing of your word. Thank you that your spirit is with us. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Thank you for also the gift of Christian community. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time. Help us particularly to fall more in love uh, uh, with Jesus, to, to fall more in awe of him during our time this morning. Uh, we, we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, in the session, How to Lead a Bible Study. It's on page 56. You'll notice that there are lots of notes. I did that on purpose so you don't have to take lots of notes. You can just do the fill-ins, and hopefully that's a help to you. Uh, before we dive into the material, I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. Why should we learn how to lead Bible studies better? Who cares? And this is supposed to be interactive, so. <laughs> Why should we even just take this time to learn how to lead Bible studies better? Thoughts on that? So others could better learn the word. So others could better learn the word. Good. Yeah. So we want to be able to represent Christ better. Excellent. Excellent. Other thoughts? Yeah. Helps us to understand the word better ourselves. Helps us to understand the word better ourselves. These are excellent. Just to glorify God. To glorify God. Excellent. A little bit later on this uh, week, as we're going through 2 Timothy, we'll get to 2 Timothy 4. And, and Paul uh, charges Timothy to, to, you know, before God and before Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And I think that leading Bible studies is one of the, the most culturally sensitive ways to preach the word. And you can think about your own experience. You probably have, have connected uh, considerable growth in Christ to some kind of Bible study with someone. And so uh, those, are, those are reasons why you're being armed, you're being equipped for the mission here, and you're also being equipped to, to know Christ more. So that's why we're doing this. Here's the second question. I want you to think of one of the, the most engaging, impactful Bible studies that you've been a part of, whether you led or someone else led. And I want you to just take a moment and tell, tell, share with the rest of us what made those Bible studies good. What made those Bible studies engaging and impactful? That you were a part of. Okay. A thorough examination of the text. Okay. Constantly going back to the text. Excellent. Interaction. Interaction. Why is that important? It gets different perspectives on the same thing. It just kind of um, activates. The yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I feel like the leader would both be like winsome, but also created like a safe space where everyone felt like they can share and everyone like felt like they can contribute at the same time. Yeah, excellent. Humility among the participants, not trying to dominate the conversation, not act like you know it all. Yeah, excellent. Other other things that you've noticed in terms of effect. If I had a question, my leader would teach me how to find the answer right within the text. Would they ever say, Where, what does the text say about that? <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you've noticed about a good Bible study? How often I focus on application. Focus on application. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, going off of what said, just like a trustworthy like, group of people. Trustworthy group of people. Right. Okay, go ahead, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say an appropriate passage length. Appropriate passage length. Yeah, it's probably not going to work real well to do like three chapters. <laughs> or, or the vice versa. If you just do one verse too, then you can miss the context, yeah. right? The use of a whiteboard. The use of a whiteboard. Yeah. yeah. That's always a plus when you can. Yeah, that's excellent. Very good. 
Excellent. Okay, we're, let's, thank you for, very much for sharing. That's very, very helpful. And we're going to cover some of those things. We'll hit on some of those things in a little bit more detail in our session. So go ahead and turn to page 56 if you're not there already. And we will dive in. We're going to look at how to lead a Bible study. We're going to look first um, at the role of the leader. Then we're going to look at how to organize the discussion how to get people talking, you wanna encourage participation, how to deal with problems. You ever had problems in a small group that you've led? If you haven't, you will. Uh, and then we're gonna look at the, the hope of a leader at the end. So let's start off with the role of the leader. Oh, by the way, an assumption I'm making, this, t- this talk is, is designed to target what you do in an actual small group Bible study. Um, I'm assuming that outside of the study, you're seeking to deepen those relationships and meet up with people who are in your Bible study. And if you don't do that, I would encourage you to do that. (laughs) Okay, the role of the leader, the first fill in there is study the scriptures well yourself. Study the scriptures well yourself. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly, handling the word of truth. You need to seek to be mastered by by the scriptures, certainly from your own OIA, observation, interpretation, application, study, but also uh, using good study resources, a good study Bible or a commentary. When you're about to lead a Bible study and you've prepared beforehand, um, you wanna consider how has the passage moved and changed you? is you get a handle that the passage should move and change you, and if it doesn't, it's gonna impact how you lead. But if it has moved and changed you, that will also come out in your, in, your, in your leading. Part of Bible study leading is not just looking at the text, but is incarnating um, the, the message of the gospel, and, and it needs to change us. Ideally, you wanna know the passage so well that you can lead a discussion from any comment made from any portion in the passage. That's how, that's, that's the ideal. B, point B, guide the discussion. Don't give a lecture. You might consider the analogy of piloting an airplane. So you have the launch, that's the beginning, and the goal of the launch is to foster engagement. You want to encourage discussion that leads to self-discovery. Folks are much more likely to remember what they share than what was shared. You wanna encourage that. Guide, that's the longest part, that's the middle part of the Bible study. And the goal is, in that uh, session, you want to keep the in- people engaged in the discussion, but you want to move the discussion back to the text constantly and, and, and to the main point of the passage. And then finally, you have land. That's the end. That's where you, you bring a fitting closure. That's where you'll summarize some of the key themes of the point. That's where you'll apply. You want to leave people wanting more. Keep the motivation higher than the commitment. You don't want to get to the end of your Bible study. And people are like, that was nice, but I don't think I'd like to do that again. Uh, rather, you want, you want people to say, oh, but I have, I have a few more questions. I have a few. That's exactly the time to end the Bible study. You want people wanting more. Next one, C, ask open-ended questions that drive discussion back to the text. And this, this principle is applicable no matter what stage you're in. You don't want to primarily ask yes or no questions. For example, in John 1, Don't ask, was the word with God? It's not going to be very helpful. The questions that you want to ask, uh, uh, you want to invite multiple responses. What do we learn about the word? There's a number of responses. Why does John open his gospel this way? All right. 
So that is the role of the leader. Let's move to how to organize the discussion. <laughs> how to organize the discussion. You want to loosely follow the OIA stages. How many of you are familiar with OIA, the term Observation, Interpretation, Application? So loosely follow those stages when you're, when you're leading a Bible study. Um, it is usual for those phases to get a little mixed up in the Bible study. That's okay, but it's helpful if the observation phase predominates at the beginning and the application phase predominates at the end. There are two dangers you want to avoid in a Bible study. One is you want to avoid aimless wandering discussion. And two, you want to avoid controlling stilted discussion. So the first one, aimless wandering discussion, that's the where you're like, where are we in the text? You know? <laughs> um, and and it, it doesn't clarify the main point. That, that's not, that doesn't serve anyone. But secondly, you want to avoid controlling stilted discussion because that bores everybody to death. A Bible study should not be boring. It should be engaging. There is a bit of an art to providing direction in a Bible study. My main suggestion is keep on leading Bible studies and you will get better. Now, these next uh, points B, C, and D, I'm going to go through a little bit more quickly. Um, but uh, again, the details are here for, for you to refer back to. So observation, this is the, the first stage. What, this is the what does the text say? That's where we're getting the facts. Often it's helpful to just launch with the easies. That's the first fill in there. What, what are the repeated words? What were striking details? What did you notice when you read this passage that you've never noticed before? What's the mood? You wanna draw out people's observations. That's the second fill in. As people share a, a comment, uh, you, can, you, can, you can linger there a little bit. What else do we learn about that? What's the significance of that statement? Actually, that's getting into interpretation, but remember the phases mix up a little bit, so that's okay. You want to ask how the passage connects, that's your next fill-in, with the previous passage in the book. Um, when you guys lead some of these small group discussions in John, we're just going to have you continue in John 1 and 2. This will be a good question to ask. What, how does this text relate to what we just saw before? And that invites actually multiple responses. And then four, dig deeper to explore how this passage is structured. How to, you, know, you want to identify logical progressions. Identify shifts in metaphors and subjects and, and to identify themes. You might even ask, what are some themes that we observe in this text? So those are some examples. It's not an exhaustive list of observation questions you can ask. I've given you some examples there in John 1, but I'm not going to read them all because I'm, gonna, I'm going to try to lead uh, a, um, a discussion of John 1 with you in a, in a little bit. So that's observation. And here's interpretation. This is the, the, the second phase. And this is where we're, we're, we're asking the question and trying to answer what does it mean? What does the text mean, to, particularly first to the original audience? This is where we're moving beyond getting the facts and we're moving to understanding the facts. Here's your first fill-in. Guide the discussion by asking lots of why and so what questions or what's the significance about? What's the significance about this? And I want to add in another question here. Um, I would say not only why and so what questions, but also what questions. So for example, two that I get a lot of mileage on almost out of any Bible study is what does this passage teach about the Lord, his nature, his character, his purposes, the way he relates to people? What does this passage teach about humankind? 
Because every passage is going to usually teach you something about both, about humankind. That's, a, that's an interpretive question. What does it teach us? You're interpreting. What are, what are we to learn about the Lord? What are we to learn about people? Um, ask questions to uncover what part of the passage bears the weight of the passage. You want to you get there at some point in your interpretation. Chief conclusions. What's a, what's a, repeated, a repeated refrain, particularly in poetry? Uh, for narratives, you want to note where the plot climax is and the resolution, because the main point of the passage is going to be really connected to that, to that plot climax. Uh, point three, summarize key conclusions from the discussion. This will be near kind of the end of your interpretive phase, um, and you'll, you'll even ask, you can even ask, what are some conclusions that we see? And then after some people share, you might insert your own conclusion as, as the leader. It's appropriate to do that. We seem to have concluded this. And then fourth, ask how the main point of the passage, that's your fill-in main point of the passage, connects to Jesus and his work. Um, you might also think of a Jesus and the cross. Uh, I've given you two diagrams in your, uh, on the next page there. Uh, the first one on the left um, that has the Old Testament and New Testament, everything in the Old Testament is anticipating, looking forward to the cross. And then everything in the New Testament and the, is either looking back to the cross or working out the implications of Jesus and the cross. Um, Luke 24 is a passage where Jesus himself said the whole scripture is about him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2 that he wants to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So those would be two passages I would go to to say we need to be looking for Christ no matter where, where we go in the scriptures. And then your other diagram there, um, this gives a, a little bit more detail of connections you can make with the gospel. The heart of the gospel is right in the bullseye is Jesus' death and resurrection. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and what that means. Particularly, if you, if you believe in Jesus, you can receive forgiveness for your sins. That's where atonement is, is made for our sins. So that's the bullseye, that's the, that's the target. But no, notice in terms of the outer circle, the incarnation of Christ, his earthly ministry, ascension, second coming. Uh, if you can make a connection from a passage to those things, then you can make further connections to the heart of the gospel. Likewise, on either side. One question I had about connecting, uh, for example, an Old Testament passage to the gospel, is there are a lot of like types of Christ in the Old Testament, but it can be easy to like, over-allegorize. How do we prevent doing that? The safest, uh, uh, that's a good question, um, the safest thing to follow is what does the New Testament, what types does the New Testament recognize? So, for instance, we know that the whole sacrificial system in the, in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Um, later on in John 1, John the Baptist is going to call Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we have New Testament uh, authority of, of interpreting that, that, that biblical theme or that type. Um, there's more we can say on that, but, but maybe we can talk about that after the, the session or if we have a little bit of time at the end. Um, so also, notice on this diagram, I have belief and repentance. That's where we receive or appropriate the gospel. And then forgiveness and obedience, which flows from the gospel. There are passages that you'll study that have a lot of commands. And this helps us that they're, they're never, never, ever in the scriptures are the commands the way to earn God's favor. That can only be earned by, by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. But we are called to obey because we're so thankful for, for what Jesus 
Jesus has done. And, and if you, I like to say, if you sign up for Jesus as Savior, you're signing up for him as Lord. It's, it's a package deal. You can't pick and choose. Um, so this helps you to make some of those connections to Christ. One other thing I'll say here, um, in, in any passage, you can make a connection to, to Christ by asking these two questions. What is the fallen condition on, dis, on display in this text? The fallen condition is what aspect of human sin or brokenness is most evident? And then you can also ask what redemptive solution is on display in this text? This is what, what aspect of God's grace is most evident? And almost any passage in the scriptures are going to either show you some evidence of man's need for, mankind's need for a savior or of God's character that would provide a savior. All right, let's move on to the next application. We'll just take this briefly. Application is how should I change? We're called to be doers of the word, not just hearers. This is where we reap from the facts that we want everyone, someone mentioned in terms of why do we do Bible study? We want people to apply. We want people to put their faith in Christ and repent. So first fill in is consider inward applications. How does the text call us to love God and love our neighbors, which is the first and second greatest commandments, according to Jesus? We want to, secondly, consider outward applications. How does the text call us to influence God's world? You might consider the great commission of Jesus to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Uh, third, ask what beliefs, desires, or actions should be put off or put on in light of the text. You'll notice here, beliefs and desires have more of an inward orientation. They're what our hearts are desiring, what our minds are believing. And then the actions are more of the hands. Uh, what, what, what does the, the scriptures compel us to do? What does the scriptures compel us to say? Then fourth, connect applications with Jesus and the gospel. Connect applications with Jesus and the gospel. And I already talked a little bit about that. Applications are never about earning, um, making atonement for our sins or earning God's favor. It's always an outflow of, of, of our, our response to God's grace to us in Christ. One note here is you don't actually have to have that many questions when you lead a Bible study. Um, you can have like seven or eight questions and just ask them more than once. What else do you notice? What, th those kinds of things. I, I remember the first time I led a Bible study my first year at Penn State, I had 40 questions prepared beforehand. It was way too many. In fact, I was way too stressed out about the number of questions that I had. So you don't actually have to have that many questions. Okay, let's look at how to encourage participation. How to encourage participation. First, fill in, smile and respond positively to everyone. Don't say, that's a horrible answer to the question. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> Even if what someone says is wrong, try to find at least one thing that you can agree with them on. And if that's not possible, you can at least appreciate that they participated. Thanks so much for engaging with the discussion. Use, uh, use humor to lighten the atmosphere. One of my hackneyed ones is when nobody's talking, I'll say, well, let's not have everyone share at once. Ha, ha, ha. And, but, you know, kind of... It kind of like, then someone feels compelled to talk. They're like, okay, this is awkward, so I'll talk. Control the discussion with your eye contact. That's your next fill-in. Control the discussion with your eye contact. Those you look at will feel compelled and allowed to speak. If silence is getting too long, look at the most talkative. 
If someone talks too much, do not look at her much. And don't worry, I'm going to ding the guys in a little bit here. Someone talks too much, don't look, at, don't look at him or her too much. There's a lot you can do just with your eye contact. Okay, here's how to deal with problems. This is the fun part. How to deal with problems. First problem on, is point A is discussions getting off track. Discussions getting off track. Has that ever happened to you guys? Yes, it has, of course. So you want to say, we're getting a little off track here. Let's get back to this. You know, people appreciate that. With you as the leader, it's frustrating when a discussion just goes on a tangent. Um, you know, there are rare instances where it is appropriate to go off track. You know, someone's mom just died or they're having a nervous breakdown and that's appropriate to go off track there. But most of the time, it's, it's not appropriate. It's, it's, let's stay focused on the, on the text. Here's a helpful redirect. I already mentioned it before. What does that have to do with the passage? Can you ask that question? I, had, I saw a, a, one of the men that I um, invested in at Gettysburg a long time ago. It was a guy named Troy, and he was leading a discussion on John 2, where Jesus changes the water into wine. And there was an argumentative guy in that discussion. And he was all bent out of shape and all wanting to talk about whether the wine was alcoholic and what the implications of that were. Troy did a great, he was like textbook in terms of how to handle this. He said to that guy, you know, he was yammering away about whether the wine was being alcoholic. He said, well, what does that have to do with the main point of the passage? Great question. And the guy, guy responded, he's like, yeah, it probably is not the main point of the, the passage, but he just kept on yammering, talking, talking, talking. So Troy redirected a second time and he said, well, if Jesus isn't trying to teach on whether wine is alcoholic or not, what do you think was, what was he trying to teach in this, in this text? And the guy responded, this is the argumentative guy. He said, well, it seems like right at the end, that verse, verse 11 and 12, that it talks about the sign revealing his glory. It seems like that's the main point. Textbook, right? So he, 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 he dealt with the discussion getting off track by coming back, just asking, how does, what does that have to do with the text? What's the main point of the text if that's not it? To the repeat offender, that's your next fill-in. To the repeat offender, you may need to hold up your hand to them and interrupt them saying, here, I'm going to ding the guys. Mike, we are going to have to leave that issue and come back to tonight's topic. Now, that may be difficult for you if you're not the kind of person that likes to be direct, but I want to tell you, you can actually be direct and kind at the same time. It is possible. You can do it. And sometimes you just need to. That serves everybody. Okay. Talkers and non-talkers. Talkers and non-talkers. Non-talkers, we'll deal with them first. Draw them out with a question directed to them. Use their name. Susan, what do you think about that? Um, and, uh, and then affirm whatever they do share. Uh, it's, it's helpful in a discussion to try to aim for, for, to involve everyone in the discussion. The quiet people, they usually have insights that the rest of the group need to hear. And you know what? The talkers need to shut up sometimes. So <laughs> this is good for everybody. Here's how you deal with the talkers. There's a little bit more length here. Uh, talkers tend to dominate the discussion. Here are four progressive steps. First step, direct questions and eye contact to others. Direct questions and eye contact to others. Second, say to the group, let's have some thoughts from those who haven't said much so far. Hint, hint. You don't have to say the hint, hint. Uh, let's have some <laughs> thoughts from those who haven't said much so far. Third, 
Step, interrupt the offender. You know this about talkers, they're actually used to being interrupted, so just interrupt them and say to them, George, we need to let some others share, please. I remember leading, yeah, George. Um, I remember leading a study years ago where there was a guy named Chad who was just dominating the discussion. And I had to be, I realized this kind of midway through. And I just, I asked the question, I said, okay, anyone in the group can answer this question except for Chad. I just, and I just made it kind of humorous, but it, it it got the job done. And then the fourth step is talk to him after the Bible study. This is the last step. Uh, I remember in a, um, in one of the churches that I've been that I've ministered in, I was leading a, a Bible study in the in the Sunday school, and there was an older gentleman that was very eager, very enthusiastic, but he was answering almost every question, and I tried all of these. I was just. Tried the first one, fail. Tried the second one, fail. It just wasn't working. And so I did end up talking with him after the passage. I tried to, after the the Sunday school, I tried to just affirm him. I appreciated his engagement, but I said, hey, can you help me out here? I'm trying to involve others. And and maybe could you keep your responses to maybe two or three? And and he did. It really really bore some fruit. So you might need to do that. Okay, tough questions. If it's not relevant, that's your first fill-in. If it's not relevant, say, that's a good question, but it is off the subject tonight. Perhaps we could talk about that after the study. For relevant questions, you'll love these. Divert the questions back to the group. It's very frustrating for the rest of the group, but it's very fun for the leader. What do the rest of you think? Also gives you a little bit more time to think about it. Ask a question on the question that was raised. Why do you ask that? And I don't mean here to be snarky or, you know, but to try to understand what is behind the question is, is, can be helpful. Then for questions that are beyond you, an example of that would be the Trinity. Um, you can say, um, I'll research that and get back to you. Uh, you. I would encourage you to talk to a pastor or a staff worker to gain further understanding. Another alternative is just to say, that's a good question, I don't know. I would much rather a Bible study leader just say that than pretend to know what they don't know. And then last, remember that God is infinite. God is infinite. That's your last fill-in under this point. And we're not going to understand everything about him. This actually gives me great comfort. If we did understand everything about God, then, then I would suspect that he's, he's a man-made. He's a man-made <laughs> God. Uh, but we're the finite trying to understand the infinite. There's going to be some gaps, okay? <laughs> um, let's end with looking at the hope of the leader, the hope of the leader. Two felons here. God's word always accomplishes God's purposes. God's word always accomplishes God's purposes. Isaiah 55, 10, and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. God's word always accomplishes its purposes. That's our hope. The hope of a Bible study leader is not in how well they lead the Bible study. Although, of course, we should seek to get better. But our hope is in how God's (laughs) spirit uses God's word to change people. You guys heard about the, the revival that happened at Asbury uh, earlier this semester? I was reading about this in a magazine, that the main speaker at, that, at that, uh, that event, before the revival broke out, he had given him a 20 or 30 minute talk, and he texted his wife on the way home, wow, another stinker of a sermon that I gave. And look how the Lord used that. 
Second fill-in. God's word sown bears much fruit. God's word sown bears much fruit. Mark 4.20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. I want you to think for a moment. We started off uh, in this session with this question, but I want you to think a moment about a Bible study that has really impacted you, okay? I want you to think about that for a moment and then look at the quote on the top of your page. And, and see if you can relate to this. Quote on the top of your page says, when God's word falls on good soil, he promises the results that re- the results will astound. That's the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's why there's a surprising glory in leading a group of ordinary people. Can anyone here identify with ordinary? Man, I sure can. Ordinary people to open their Bibles, read what's on the page, and discuss how God might use these words to change the world. That's the privilege that we get to be a part of when we're leading a Bible study. And our hope is in what God does by his spirit through his word. Our hope is not in how great of Bible study leaders we are. All right, let me uh, just close this in prayer, and then I'll give a little bit more direction. Lord, we're just so grateful, again, to be in your word together. We pray that you would continue to take the plow deep in our own hearts and minds. Would would you help us to grow in our skill as as Bible study leaders, but at the same time to not put our hope uh, in how we lead uh, a study. And may your word continue to change us this, this next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go on break for a few minutes, let me just uh, alert you to some resources. The first is in the blue here, um, St. Helen's Bishopsgate Church. It's a Reformed Anglican church in London that puts out some excellent, excellent Bible study resources. You can just go to this website. They have sermons and stuff, but particularly their Bible study uh, resources. You can look up almost any book of the Bible, and they have a PDF of just a free downloadable PDF of OIA notes on that book of the Bible. And I actually like going to them before I, I go to other study resources. Um, if they, now they're polished, they're polished resources. Um, when they put them in book form, they're no longer downloadable as a PDF. So if you want to check it out, here's their, their one on, their, they're called Read, Mark, Learn books on John. They have books like this on John, Romans, and Luke is what I'm aware of so far. But all of the rest, PDFs online, gold. They're really, really good. So check them out. I particularly like they do a good job of showing flow of thought, historical background, main point, and they actually have questions in here about good questions you can ask when you're leading a small group on those texts, okay? So check out St. Helen's Bishopsgate. And then I also have a couple other resources here. Um, You can check any of these resources out um, during the next few days. So we have Noble Word, and then Sowable Word. Sowable Word is the quote at the top of your handout. Both are written by um, our president, Peter Kroll. Um, Knowable Word is the first book. Sowable Word is the second book. Again, really, really helpful. If you don't have a copy of these, I would encourage you to pick one up.